we talk with with so many small firms through the course of a week or a month, and and you'd be surprised how many of them don't have any cap capacity for tracking hours, or maybe they're doing it with Excel spreadsheets. And and honestly, it's there are so many and many low cost apps by which you can track hours and automate the process in some way. We suggest perhaps a more sophisticated way, like using a, a product like Monograph as a project management tool that can really help you understand where your hours are going and how the performance of your, your firm is tracking. But to begin with, you've got to track your hours. Once you track your hours, you can begin to track your key operational indicators. Welcome everyone to Section Cut, our first ever conference dedicated to the stories of leaders who are innovating on practice operations. Next up on the studio stage today, we have Rina from Sherat Venture Group for her session on financial management basics for small firms. Let's welcome Rina. I'm glad to be here at Monograph and uh, Section Cut. And I'm uh, going to give you a really quick run through about financial management basics for small firms. Thanks for being here, Rina. I'm sure we'll learn a lot today on financial stuff. So I'll let you take it away. Thank you. All right. Let me talk for a few minutes about Charette Venture Group and the work that we do with architectural firms all over the country. We are one of the few consulting firms that really enjoy working with small architectural firms and design firms of all kinds. We offer a constellation of services and a holistic approach to helping you run your design firm better. So let's talk about financial management and starting off by talking about what people kind of think of when they think of financial management, which is what is really should be called accounting. Now, accounting, you really should have be done by a professional accountant and it focuses on tax consideration. It helps you understand your cash flow and any accountant you work with should certainly be customized for uh, professional service firms understand the meaning of professional service firms, which is really different than you know running a store or a manufacturing plant. However, within our firms, and this is often the job of the principal or perhaps a financial manager that you might have as part of your firm if it's a little bit bigger, is to really understand what's going on financially within the firm and within projects. Because financial management involves project accounting in our firms, as well as looking at the whole big picture. And it gives you insight into how to make um, smart business decisions. And if you're anything like me, and I ran a small firm, architectural firm for about 20 years, understanding the numbers helps with your anxiety level. You have a better sense of what's been going on and what can happen in the future. Now, there's sometimes you'll hear a lot of controversy about whether you want to use cash-based reporting or accrual-based reporting. And the, the honest truth is you need both. 
cash-based reporting really just tells you what's going on right now, kind of like your checkbook. You know, money in, money out, how much money I've left over, how much you might have next month to pay your bills or pay your payrolls. But it doesn't tell us much about how the firm is performing in terms of profitability or in terms of even how effective your project delivery processes might be. So for that, you really need accrual-based reporting. And in accrual-based reporting, what you're getting is the cash value of the amount of effort you've done in any particular month, because the revenue reflects the invoices that you've sent, not the cash you've received. Because as we all know, you know, you might be receiving cash from work you did 60 days ago or 90 days ago. And so it's not really reflective of what's going on right now. So you need an accrual-based report in order to understand that. But accrual-based reports are not used for tax reporting. You need cash for that. But you do need it to understand your profitability, not how much money you have in the bank, but how much you're actually clearing after you pay all of your expenses. So you can look at these two kind of parts of a profit and loss or income statement report where on one side we have a cash basis, which is talking about the total income and cash. And on the other side, we have an accrual basis looking at the total income and accrual. And you can see that they're quite different. Not only that, the amount of bills that were paid to consultants and other project-related expenses in this particular month were different. And on a cash basis, you record it when you actually pay it. On an accrual basis, you record it when you receive the invoice. So you know what basically you owe. So your profit for this period of time As you can see, it's very different in an accrual basis than in a cash basis, but it's the accrual report that really gives you the right idea of what you earned and what you owe within a given period of time. Now, this is important because it fits into your whole financial management cycle. There's, um, you know, a lot of different activities that have to happen in order to do adequate financial management. And hopefully the um, principal is not doing all of this, that you have a professional bookkeeper that's helping you understand these different reports and how you set them up. But as you can see in this diagram, the chart of accounts is really center, and that's a listing of every account that you have in your business apparatus. So below the line there, you're looking at at current things, time tracking, key financial indicators, profit and loss statements. And above the line there, you're doing your planning activities, your annual budget, your annual profit plan, and then also looking at budgets around projects themselves. So how do you know if your firm is being profitable? Before you can increase your profitability and understand how to use this financial management material, you have to understand the influences on profitability. Now, one of them is utilization rate and how much of all the hours that are worked by you and your staff 
are actually worked on projects? What percentage of total hours are direct hours or work hours worked on projects? And then from there, you have um, a factor known as billable ratio. Like how many of those hours are actually paid for? Maybe you have to discount them. Um, maybe you've run over, you've already used all the budget and you still have more work you have to do on the project. As we know, for various reasons, not every hour we work on a project can be billed to a client. So we look at the billable ratio, what percentage of hours worked on, on projects can actually, are actually being paid for by the client. And then looking at your break-even rate, understanding your overhead, understanding your overhead in relation to direct hours. In other words, for every hour that you're working on a project, how many dollars do you have to get in to just to cover the overhead? Now, in order to do any of this, in order to do any financial management, you have to track hours. And we talk with so many small firms through the course of a week or a month, and you'd be surprised how many of them don't have any capacity for tracking hours, or maybe they're doing it with Excel spreadsheets. And honestly, there are so many and many low-cost apps by which you can track hours and automate the process in some way. We suggest perhaps a more sophisticated way, like using a, a product like Monograph as a project management tool that can really help you understand where your hours are going and um, how the performance of your, your firm is tracking. But to begin with, you've got to track your hours. Once you track your hours, you can begin to track your key operational indicators. As I said, utilization rate being one, and billable ratio being the other. Now we like to see utilization rate at about 65%. And in this example, I'm giving you the utilization rates are quite high, quite above 65%. And when we see that, we know that that probably means not enough time is being spent on the non-billable things that are necessary, like process improvement and learning and you know, meeting together and all the other kinds of things that you do to support effective project delivery. And in this case, you'll also see very low billable ratio. So they're working a lot of hours, but they're not getting paid for very many of them. And in some ways, they could work fewer hours and focus on how to get paid for more of those hours through various things, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. Um, but let me first talk about how to improve average utilization rates if you're in a firm where the utilization rates are too low. Now, sometimes that's because you just don't have enough work to keep everybody busy. And you'll see people kind of stretching out the work they have to do and, and utilization rates will be lower. And I know many experienced that during last year, during COVID, having periods of time when maybe not everybody could keep busy, although I know for most firms that shifted. Nevertheless, it's really important to make sure that everybody has the same understanding and it's consistent about what hours are billable and what hours aren't. It, sometimes you'd be surprised that people 
are making those judgments individually and not making them in the same way. So it's important to discuss that and make sure it's consistent. Principles in firms that are probably five and up, we, we like to see the utilization rate at more like 40 to 50%. So because the principals have a lot of other things they need to do. And if they're spending more time than that on billable work, it probably means those things aren't getting done. In a smaller firm, in a firm under five, you know, the utilization rate of a principal is going to have to be higher than that because you're going to have to do a, a larger part of the project. But it's one of the reasons it's very difficult to be profitable in a firm that's under five. You just don't have enough billable hours. However, if you have a high billable ratio, you can make up for a lot of that. And these are the kinds of things that really impact billable ratio. Scope creep for one of them, and I know many of you know what that means. You've got to ask to be paid for additional work. You've got to track additional work. I'll talk a little bit more about techniques for avoiding scope creep, and which is more external while over-delivery is more internal. You know, many of us are not satisfied ever and are continuing to strive for perfection. But you can never reach perfection because that's an absolute. We need to strive for excellence instead and understand what that means. We also need to pay more attention to operational effectiveness and and to delegating to make sure that the right work is done by the right staff and that everybody is creating a culture of paying attention to schedule and budgets, which is something we have to learn as architects because it's not so emphasized in our training. And almost all architects charge too little. <laughs> not everybody, but consider charging higher fees because when we talk about billable ratio, there's two parts of the equation. There's how much you're getting paid and how much effort it takes you to do it. So if you can increase what you're being paid or increase or decrease the amount of effort, you can have a higher billable ratio. And we like to see 90%. That's a best practice. Nobody, or very few, get to 100%. So looking at some of these issues more carefully, we want to, when we're talking about scope creep, it's so important to articulate our um, scope, to be really, really clear about what, Aspects of our scope have to do with basic services, with some value-added services that you may be able to charge more for. And what's the risk involved? Is there significant unpredictability in this project? Is it a project type you haven't done before? All different kinds of things, a difficult client, all kinds of things might add to this. So understanding that as you articulate your scope and we find, you know, in terms of buying buyer psychology, it's really helpful to give your clients options in their proposal, some kind of a, a matrix like this that carefully outlines and articulates scope, as well as giving the client a chance to choose what level of services you know, might work for them. And then being very clear that during the process, if they end up wanting something that was in the other column, that's going to be an additional service. In terms of over-delivery, the best way to approach that is to make sure that you understand 
what you consider excellence in deliverables at every stage of the game. And you might have exemplary projects or a a library of best practices that would help your staff understand this. But it's also important to implement project plans and to have a feedback communication loop so that the people who are working on the project can come to you and say, wait a minute, you said you thought this, that we have 20 hours left on this phase. And I honestly, I have at least 40 or 50 hours left on this stage. What should we do? And create a, what I like to call a project completion strategy or a phase completion strategy, like decide together what really needs to be done and what maybe doesn't, and to try to bring the project in at its budget. Now, part of this is understanding how you need to staff your firm. And much of that comes from understanding your business model. If you're a, what we would call an efficiency-based firm, and which means that you're doing, you become basically an expert in repeatable projects that you're doing the same kind of project over and over again, and you can really focus on the technology and on the processes and really get it done better, faster, cheaper. And there's huge firms in our industry that are based on this, like Mulvaney G2 in the Seattle area that does tilt-up Costco's and tilt-up warehouses all over the world and has a very large junior staff that's well-trained and can have fewer people in the upper parts. And they're a 200, maybe 300 person firm doing this kind of thing. On the other end of the scale is an expertise type firm. And they're generally top heavy because they have special knowledge or special talent and the partners or the people who know the information who have the special talent have to be doing a lot of the work. So there's fewer junior staff and perhaps fewer in the middle project manager. And then there's the vast middle, the experience-based firms, where you need to have a balanced staffing triangle. And what you're experienced at is doing complex, solving complex problems, not necessarily a certain project type, but being able to that ability to solve complex projects and use the knowledge that you've accrued from past projects to apply to new problems is what experienced firms can do. And most of you would probably define yourself as experience-based firms, but it's really the hardest model in order to make money in. Because in order to make money, you have to have well-managed projects and you have to skillfully use your SCAF resources, meaning the right person has to do the right project. So parts of the project. So if principals are doing what project managers could do, it's money going out the window. If project managers are doing what emerging professionals might do, money going out the window again. And often we see firms that are either very weak in the middle, so it's really principals and junior staff, or very big in the middle. So it's project managers, project architects who have no one to delegate to. Either of those things can be a real problem in terms of profitability in an experience-based firm. Now, it's also important to recognize that projects have these this kind of typology also. 
that every project you do is not a non-routine project. Every project, of course, is unique and has some new opportunities, but many projects use repeatable elements and our 90% of it is pretty similar every time. Then there's kind of the middle uh, group of projects where you can have new applications to knowledge you already know. So you're just kind of getting better at those kinds of projects. And many firms find that it helps their finances if they have kind of a, a base of, of uh, you know, bread and butter, more routine projects that they can do quickly, that they know how to do, that support their ability to do the craft and non-routine projects. So how do you know what to charge? And this is a difficult thing in our our profession. We don't share this kind of information with each other, and I'm not suggesting that you do, but there are certain concepts that can help you understand what you might charge in the particular market you are. And again, we go back to this Venn diagram, looking at value and effort and risk and thinking about developing your fees by a top-down approach, which is kind of looking at the market value of what you're going to do. And that might be expressed as a percentage of the construction cost. Plus, you know, comparing that to a bottom-up approach, what's the value of the labor that it'll take you to do this project? And of course, if you have been tracking your hours and you have historic data on similar projects, that helps you understand what the effort involved is going to take. And if you have historic projects and you can see what the construction cost actually ended up being, you can understand what the value in the marketplace of your services might be. So in a numbers way, we need to look at this by thinking about our, in order to value the effort that we put into a project, we have to understand the break-even rate of our firm. Now, I got to say break-even rate or overhead rate as a terminology is used in all different kinds of ways in our profession and defined in all different kinds of ways by the various project management softwares that you might use or see. However, this is the definition that I would recommend and that, that I would use as industry standard which is understanding how your operating expenses in relation to your direct labor expense or the value of hours worked on projects. And you can see in the little spreadsheet there that you can calculate the direct labor by taking the percentage of the salary times the utilization rate, actual utilization rate is best or utilization target of each person in a firm add them up, you understand what your direct labor expense for the year might be, divide that into your all of your operating expenses, and you'll get a number that is something and then should be in the neighborhood of 2.5, 2.8, depending on where you practice. And if you practice in an expensive urban environment, that might be higher. But that means that for every dollar you're spending on people working on projects, you need to get in, in this case, $2.60 just to break even. If you want to be profitable, you need to add a profit percentage onto that break even rate. 
And for example, if it's a 20% profit that you're aiming for, then you can divide by the complement, which is 0.8. And that gives you your billing rates at, for break-even, so adding profit. So if your break-even rate is something like 2.6, your billing multiple with a profit is going to be 3 or 3.2, something in that 3.25 actually for a 20% profit. So you take that factor and you can multiply it times the hourly cost rate of each of your employees to understand what their billing rate should be. Now, in this spreadsheet, it shows you the hourly cost of the employee, the break-even cost without any overhead, add the 20% margin, and you get this kind of cost, and compare that to their actual billing rates. And you can see the percentage profit that would theoretically be made on each of these people's hourly rate. Now, you know, 100% is, is pretty high. and But for, in most cases, you want that percentage to be at least over 30%. 40% is good because, as you know, you can't bill for every hour that they spend on it. So you have to have some slush built in on your hourly billing rates. What we're looking for is an hourly billing rate, again, of 25 to 30%. Now, let's finally take a look at understanding project profitability. And that's where the rubber meets the road. How are you actually doing on projects? And this is kind of a quick way of checking in with that if you have no other way to do it, which is to take the total fee and divide it by the total hours and you get an effective hourly rate. And then you want to compare that effective hourly rate with what the average break-even cost rate would be. So in this case, the average break-even cost rate is about $85 an hour. And then this person did an analysis of the various different kinds of projects they did to see which project type actually resulted in hourly rates that are higher than that break-even rate. In other words, they were actually profitable on a project that's in green where the effective hourly rate was higher than their break-even rate. So you can do this as a quick and dirty check. And also in this case, the principal here kind of also rated the experience, you know, the client experience with these projects and noted that the clients that she really liked a lot maybe actually was a little less profitable <laughs> because, oh, sure, I like you, so I'll give you a little extra this and that. Got to watch out for that because it can really add up and doing this kind of analysis can help you really see where you are in that way. So just as a summary, here are the, the key performance indicators that you really want to look at regularly want to see utilization rate 60 to 65%, billable ratio 85 to 90%, your billing multiple in a 2.5 to 2.8 range. And it is really possible to make a profit as an architectural firm of 15 to 20%. A very important slide. So all of this is really great, 
And I know that that many of you as principals out there are thinking about this kind of thing a lot. However, we find that you can have a strategy, you can have all this understanding, but the culture of the firm to really makes all the difference when it comes to increasing your profitability and being more effective in your project management. And going to the quick slide again, sorry. Most architecture firms will describe their culture with these kinds of words. And we do this exercise with firms all the time. And these words are wonderful. I love working in a profession and and being an architect where the bottom line isn't the only bottom line for what we can do. But sometimes we need to add not an adversarial approach, but an additional approach that allows us to be more effective using words like discipline, consistency, having procedures and accountability and being transparent about your project fees, about your, in a big picture way, about your firm's financials. All of these things are really important to people and help them understand what it means to be accountable and why procedures are important. So the words in the, in the last slide, and I'll go back for a second, are not adversarial to the words in these slides. And we find that, that firms that think about it this way, and, and when you think about your projects, about your architecture, you always apply these kinds of things to thinking about that. Just have to use the same processes when you're thinking about running your business, which is, after all, a design process. So, any questions? <laughs> Thanks, Rina. That was amazing. I feel like I'm like learning at the same time while I'm watching it. It's amazing. Okay, we do have some questions. I'm going to get on the Q&A. So Catherine has a question. Rina, I'm curious whether you find creating a project-specific hours matrix when writing a proposal is something that takes too much time for little return or whether it's a practice you recommend. I would recommend it as an internal practice. I would never share that with a prospective client or put it as part of a proposal. But as an internal practice, it's actually really critical. And if you have historical data, it can help you. And if you set up a spreadsheet that where you can just plug in numbers and it does a lot of the work for you, it shouldn't take that much time. But if you don't do it, you're just kind of guessing at the amount of effort, or maybe you're doing your fee on a percentage of cost base, construction cost basis, or doing it on some kind of intuition about what this client might be willing to pay. And that those things are important, but you need to compare it to a, a bottom-up metric. And I, I strongly suggest that, that you do that. How detailed you get, that's debatable, but the more historical data you have, the easier it is. Definitely. We have a question here. Catherine wants to know if you could repost the KPI slide you had. I think that was a very useful slide. And I can add it to the stream. This one? That one. Okay. But we'll keep that up while we are answering more questions. Lindsay here. Can you please discuss the advantages of each type of billing type? Fixed fee, hourly, percentage of construction cost for small firms. What should we be considering when we're planning a contract or a billing type? 
Well, that's a whole nother seminar, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) But we generally recommend a fixed fee because if you have enough experience and historical data to know that fixed fee is adequate, and that's where, you know, kind of the bottom up computations come in handy and then add a huge contingency, right? Whatever you think it's going to be, you know, add another 15% to it or something like that, because you can think things into place so much quicker than you can actually do them. But, um, <laughs> but if you have a fixed fee, then you have the possibility of actually making profit. If you charge hourly, the better you get at it, the less you get paid. And so it takes away the possibility of profit unless you're charging a very high hourly fee. So if you have good data and intelligence, we we recommend a fixed fee. You can do it by phase. Some people divide things up to just have a schematic design or a pre-designed kind of feasibility study contract, see how that goes, do that hourly or on a, a range basis, and then create a a fixed fee for design development and construction documents and CA when you know what the project is. So some people do it that way. There's like a hundred different ways of of structuring your contracts, but but you have to think about sharing risk and trying to structure it in a way that the worst thing is to do it hourly with a a maximum price because that way you're taking all the risk and the, uh, the customers. Yeah, I feel like a lot, maybe it's just in my experience, a lot of projects when they're in CA, they would do hourly rate with yeah. a max fee. What well, do you think about uh, that? Never <laughs> hourly with a max fee, never. Be, for, and any phase, because that means if you go over, you take the hit. And if you go under, you take the hit. You know, so take that out. But in terms of of CA, it's really important that you set a scope of services if you have a fixed fee. Like this is for X number of weeks. If the if the um, project continues on beyond those X number of weeks, that's additional service. Or you say it's for X number of meetings. You know, critical stage meetings. If they want more meetings than that, additional service. So you can you can create a fixed fee. For it, as long as you articulate a particular scope along with that. That makes sense. We have a question here from Jake. Can you share examples of the differentiation CVG often recommends in the three-tier proposal system? I don't think I... That's so market-specific and so... Services specific, like some people add interior design. Some people are talking about a second phase that might mean more conceptual versions or uh, realistic rendering. Or there's just so many different kinds of ways that you can structure that and then structure your fees. Not everybody does it by percentage of construction, but I think in general the answer is you are tailoring that fee set of services. And as you increase the amount of services you do, that fee should increase. But the basic one should include everything that needs to be done. I would include CA in that. I would never make that an additional service because we it's a basic service that's critical. So the basic 
version has to have all of the critical basic services. You're not doing a bait and switch, offering them something that's less than what they really need, and then they have to get additional services to get that. So, you know, have integrity, but think about the kinds of things that could be add service to your clients that they might like. And most of the time, people pick the middle version. So, and you can tailor it to that's the best value, you know, create a version with, that really looks like the best mm-hmm. value. Thanks, Rina. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.